0: May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. My last meeting in London uh, a week and a half ago, the meeting that I actually went to London for, uh, a meeting that I chaired, a meeting that lasted two hours, uh, involved the Bishop of Chelmsford. It was a little nerve-wracking to chair a meeting with the Bishop of Chelmsford there, all in his And there was me in my shorts, because it was a hot day. And uh, we had to squeeze this meeting into his diary, so he had a lot of responsibilities, including at 2.30 he was due at the House of Lords. The House of Lords. (laughs) He, like a number of other Church of England bishops, are active at the heart of the British establishment. They sit in the House of Lords. They can be part of any debate they want to be part of and uh, vote on any issue that they feel they can vote on. They have a voice and they are seen as important. That's pretty different from us here in New Zealand, isn't it? they are not really that important anymore. I can remember when I was ordained, uh, there was a desk for the press at the back of synods, and there was always press there. Uh, I was in the Diocese of Wellington, and our synods were always in Wellington, and there were always journalists there from the Dominion and the Evening Post, and they would write articles about what had happened that day at synod, and you would read the articles sometimes and wonder if they'd been at the same meeting that I'd been at, (laughs) because I really didn't understand what was going on, but nonetheless, there were reporters there from the big daily national papers reporting on what was happening at the big Anglican synods. Earlier this year we had our General Synod in New Plymouth and there was again the press gallery but the only press I ever saw there were our press, the people who worked for the Anglican Church and they did a great job of recording what was going and they put out press releases about the major things that we thought were important, and some of those were picked up by the national press, and some of them weren't. I thought there might be some, given the interest around the blessing of same-gender marriages, but they did run the article when it came out, and they'll continue to um, run the occasional follow-up article just about the arguments that are happening more than anything else. It makes good press when there's people leaving the church over such things. But mostly mostly we don't get in there. Certainly our calls for a Royal Commission on the justice system didn't make it into the national press. So times have changed a lot. Mostly we don't fit in the centre of society anymore. We're not that important. And for some, maybe many, we mourn that. We liked it when we were... In that place of importance, like the Church of England still is in England, at least least in the structures. But as we think about that, and then if we reflect on our readings this morning, I I wonder if we were ever supposed to be in the centre. I wonder if we were ever supposed to have that kind of influence. This morning, we heard some of Paul's autobiographical account, only some of it. Um, He makes more comments in other places. For Paul, well, he was an outsider. I mean, even in the church, he was an outsider. He was definitely an outsider in Judaism. He just didn't fit the mould, really. He didn't look like an apostle, he didn't speak like an apostle. He didn't act like an apostle, he didn't teach like an apostle, like people thought that an apostle would kind of uphold the law and say that if you're going to be a Christian you have to be a good Jew, and he didn't do that. There are a few people confused today about Paul who think that Paul was a bit of a legalist, but he wasn't, he was the anti-legalist, and he fought against a legalistic understanding of Christianity, and so he was dismissed by many, including a number of the other apostles, Ironically, he's the one we go to today and the others are kind of lost in history. But he was the outsider and eventually was executed by the Roman state as a pest, more than anything, a pest that needed to be got got rid of. This icon of early Christianity was an outsider on the edge. And our story of Jesus today, well, he did great things and people were pretty impressed with him, except when he got home. And when he got home, people were embarrassed by him. I mean, he was a carpenter. And there are, like, son of Mary, that's a very interesting phrase, isn't it? I mean, was Joseph around? Was this a a kind of a a nod towards rumours about his conception? Or was Joseph dead and Mary was a widow? In which case, her social standing had plummeted, not that she had very much because she was the wife of a carpenter and carpenters were well they weren't particularly high class people and she lived in Nazareth not the greatest village in the world kind of like well Miraval really maybe worse so he goes home this carpenter of dubious lineage and he's now teaching in the synagogue and people are a little upset about that That is not what carpenters do. Who does he think he is? And by doing that, well, he is bringing shame on his family. So his family's not super happy about this either. They want him to be quiet. They want him to come home. They want him to go back to being a carpenter, to what he is supposed to be doing, to fit back into where he is supposed to be in the social strata. He's on the edge. He's not meeting expectations. And in the end, the end of the story is, well, he's crucified. He is named an outsider and meaningless by both the Jewish hierarchy and the Roman hierarchy. And the early church sat on that edge for a long time. So maybe, maybe we belong on the edge, not in the middle. Maybe we've just come home. Maybe it's a good thing we don't have the press reporting about everything that happens. And maybe when they do report, it's about some of the other stuff that we're doing, the prophetic stuff. While I was away, um, a couple of things uh, struck me. And one of them was the importance of our prayer book in all of this. A long time ago, when I was at theological college, I read some reflections on the philosophy of Ludwig Wittgenstein. So you're all familiar with Ludwig Wittgenstein. He only wrote two books, but he's a very important philosopher, um, Austrian philosopher from the kind of early 1900s, early to mid-1900s. And one of the things he said was that the words we use shape our understanding of the world. Now, we usually flip that the other way around, don't we? Our understanding of the world leads to the words we use. And he said, well, that's kind of true, but it's equally true that the words we use shape our understanding of the world. Now, that becomes really important when we think about our liturgy. The words we use in our liturgy shape our understanding of God and who we are in God and of our place in the world. And it was that, that struck me while I was away. So an example of that is, in our traditional prayer books, all the imagery about God and all the language about God is male. We refer to God constantly as He, as Father, as King. And, well, we just think that's how it is, but if you think about that in if you keep doing that over and over and over again, you end up in a place where you can easily accept that God is a man. And, and there are a lot of Christians who think that God is a man because the only language they have ever used about God is male. Of course, that's a theological nonsense. God is not a man, God is neither male or female, God is beyond gender. God is. And so to kind of limit God to man, it's ridiculous, and it limits God. It limits our understanding of who God is and how God works in the world. And so the language we have used, which has been male-dominated, has shaped people's understandings and limited people's understandings of who God is. Well... One of the things that I noticed while I was away was how gender-inclusive our prayer book is. And I noticed that because I hit the exact opposite. So in Australia, the liturgies they used were all he. The language about God was all he. The language about humanity was about men. The hymns, the liturgies, the prayers, all of it. And after about three days, I had had enough. I was like, excuse me, is there any other language we can use, please? Because this is really getting me down as a man. And I don't know how the women were coping, but maybe they're just used to it. Maybe, and I suspect that the Australian prayer book is a lot more conservative than ours, even though it was written after ours. And then when I got to England, well, I used the English morning prayer, the daily office. And uh, I do that because it's mostly based on the SSF, the Society of St. Francis daily office book. So um, they've just taken out the references to um, Francis and Claire, but kind of left everything else in. So um, it was sneaky, Uh, but I left the Franciscans to do all the hard work. And um, what I notice about some of their colleagues is it's very church-driven like, the point of Christianity is the church. And I would say, and I think our prayer book reflects this, actually the point of Christianity is the world, and the church is the vessel for that. But when you constantly pray about the church and the glorification of the church, and the church will be wonderful, blah, 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 then you kind of think that the church is what it's all about. And a lot of people think that it's the church is what it's all about, because that's the language we have used. So I just wanted to talk about two examples in our prayer book which I think are really interesting, and I think are really helpful. The first of those is the creeds, the Nicene Creed. So in the traditional version of the Nicene Creed, which is still used by the Anglican Church, In Australia and England, even though their prayer books are much newer than ours. They say, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. It was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made man. So what does ours say? Fully human. Fully human. Now I think that's a really important change. Church of England has really struggled with a lot of people who continue to say that the important thing about Jesus was he had some bits to him that other people don't have and so if you're going to preside at the altar, you've got to have those bits because the creed says he was a man. But actually the debates during the time that the Nicene Creed was being written weren't about the bits at all they were about Was Jesus human, or was he the highest of all created beings? Like, was he God and human, or was he just the highest of all created beings? So not human, but not God either. So when you read Daniel Brown's Da Vinci Code and the people that say the debate was about whether Jesus was human or God, it wasn't. It was about whether he was human and God, or something completely different. So the important part of that line was that he was fully human as well as fully divine. So actually, what's in our prayer book is much closer to what the debate in the Nicene period was about, much closer to what they were talking about, and much more helpful. Because actually the importance of the Incarnation isn't that he was a man, it was that he was fully human. And that... All of us, male and female, can identify with him. The second example, and there are lots in our prayer book, but the second example which struck me because we pray night prayer every night was um, the Australians and the English still have, my brothers and sisters our helpers in the name of the eternal God, because you all pray night prayer, you will know that traditionally it was, who made heaven and earth, past tense, done and dusted, finished, Thank you very much. And when we use that language, it is very much like, well, God made earth, and God handed it over to us, and it's up to us to do whatever we like, whether we nurture it or kill it, doesn't matter, it's, our, it's, you know, like, it's up to us, and lots of people say, well, and it doesn't matter because we're all going to heaven anyway, this is just a temporary place, so we can rubbish this place, and it doesn't matter that there's poor people because we're all going to heaven, this world doesn't count. And that attitude comes out of words like, who made heaven and earth. But somehow, when our prayer book was uh, was being written, there was a guy called Jim Cotter, who was an English priest, and he wrote a number of daily office books. And some of his prayers got into our prayer book. And his line in this prayer is, our help is in the name of the eternal God, who is making heaven and earth. Present tense. Not finished. God is still involved. And that's in our night prayer. That's what I pray most nights. Who is making. Now that's a very different thing. Because suddenly God hasn't finished and moved off and left us for us to do with what we like. But God is still involved in the creating. And we aren't kind of on our own doing things maybe on behalf of God or maybe not. But actually us as church are involved with the ongoing work of creation in this world. So what happens in this world is important because God is still creating and we are still involved in that. That's the point of the church. Now both of those examples are very small but I think they're really important. Important words that were changed that shape how we see the world and how we see God. Now, I don't know what was happening in the 1980s. I don't know how our church just took this giant, radical step. And you don't realise how radical our prayer book is until you go overseas and spend time using other people's prayer books, which are still really traditional. They just couldn't break the shackles of Cramner's Book of Common Prayer. They pretty much stuck to it. They played around with some of the language. But somehow our prayer book commission went, well, we'll have some traditional ones, but we're going we're gonna to take some giant steps. We're going to use some really different language. We're going to have things like the Benedictine de Aotearoa. Like, people get very confused about how can, how can animals give thanks? I was actually at a Methodist meeting where, um, it was where a probationer had done his um, service where he gets tested and he'd used the benedictus of the Aotearoa, and their one comment about the service was they didn't think that was theologically kosher. I was outraged as a Franciscan. I was like, that's just ridiculous. Of course animals can give thanks to God. That's the important thing about that. We're not giving thanks for those animals. All of creation is being invited to give thanks to God. Which is why there's rabbits in there. People go, we shouldn't have rabbits, they're nasty things. Well, they might be nasty things, but they should still be invited to give their praise and thanks to God. So, that's why the rabbits survived. For those who are a little confused about that. That's long enough for a sermon. I had more, but I didn't think I'd get there. So... I think we belong on the edge. This is our place. I don't think it's a bad thing. We've been pushed out here. And I give thanks for the work of the Spirit of God in the 1980s that worked with the Prayer Book Commission that gave us a prayer book that actually helps us be at the edge and gives us some of the language that can help us understand who we are at the edge and the God who invites us to speak from the edge and to be from the edge. And I give thanks for our prayer book, and I hope you give thanks for our prayer book. It is a wonderful gift from God that we need to cherish and to know, as many people around the world know, that it is still, one, 30 years after it came out, 30 years after it was approved by General Synod, still one of the most radical prayer books in the Anglican community.